Well, good morning, church family. Yeah. It's great to see you guys. For those of you that are new here, my name is Pete, and I have the honor of serving as the lead pastor. It's great to have our team from the DR back in uh, in the house with us. Uh, Can we give it up for those that went for a week and showed the love of Jesus to some people in the Dominican Republic? Excited to hear what God uh, did through them this past week. Uh, Before I dive into the message today, I cannot believe it's already July, and with it being the first week of the month, I want to invite my church family out to what we do the first week of every month, which is to have a prayer meeting on the first Thursday of the month. As a church, we want to be a people who are continually going before the Lord and just asking him to continue to move, asking him to continue pouring out his spirit so that people who are far from God can continue to find hope and healing and freedom and forgiveness and salvation in Jesus. And so we'd love to have you come out here this Thursday at 6 p.m. to just have a time of prayer and go before the Lord. It's going to be a great time. So week eight of GOAT, where we've been exploring some of the greatest of all time things that God has said to us through his word. We've covered the great commandment, the great commission, and for the last four weeks or so, uh, five weeks uh, with you know, one interruption in there on Father's Day, we've been looking at the greatest requirement found in Micah chapter six, verse eight, an Old Testament prophetic book where it says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Three things that God requires of his people. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. We've already talked about acting justly, which is about our actions. There are things in this world that we would readily admit and recognize that are not right in the world. And so the people of God recognize that God wants us to partner with him to right those wrongs and to help some of the people who the world tends to kind of push down and help lift them up. God's heart has always been for the vulnerable. And so God says, if you are not actively seeking to do right by the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor, then your heart is not right with me. Acting justly is about working actively to create a just society where everyone, including the most vulnerable and the weakest, can flourish and thrive. Then last week we talked about loving mercy, which is about our affections. We need to be a people who love not giving people what they deserve because God loved not giving us what we deserved which is punishment, because we are all sinners deserving of punishment, but God took our punishment and gave us grace and mercy instead. And so the way we grow in our love for showing mercy is by remembering how much mercy we require from God, remembering how much mercy we require from other people, because none of us are perfect, and you know we need to remember that. Remembering that mercy can do what judgment can't. Mercy is a powerful thing, and it will change people when you show them mercy instead of giving judgment. we got to remember Jesus' call to follow him and his example, right? He says, pick up your cross, deny yourself, follow me, and we got to deny ourselves that, that feeling and that need to feel like we've got to get right and get even. Sometimes instead, you know, if God felt that way towards us, we would all be in hell. So we remember God's call to follow Jesus' example. Then lastly, we have to remember the, the cost of not loving mercy. Some of the very sobering warnings in Scripture, ones particularly in James when it says that judgment without mercy will be shown to those who are not merciful. And so that was last week on loving mercy. Why, by the way, did any of you guys watch Les Mis this past week? Because I mentioned it in the sermon last week, maybe just a couple of you. Uh, we actually started to watch it last night as a family. Um, I didn't realize it was like a two-hour and 40-minute movie. And I have to go to bed early on Saturday nights to get ready for Sunday morning, so uh, we'll probably finish that up today as a family. But today we are going to talk about the last part of that verse, walking humbly with God, which is about our attitudes. So actions, affections, attitudes. I would argue that it is possible to do the first two, to act justly and love mercy, but if you miss the third If you don't do those while walking humbly with God, it's really nothing more than philanthropy that's disconnected from any kind of spirituality. 
There's a lot of people who are doing good in the world, but they're not necessarily doing it in the name of God. And so God says, I want a people who, yes, represent and act justly and love mercy, but also represent me. When John Newton, the 18th century pastor and hymn writer, preached a message on this verse, he said that there are fewer passages in Scripture that are more generally misunderstood than this one. And when I came across that this week, I was kind of struck by that. Because there's a lot of passages in Scripture that I think are, are misunderstood. And I don't know exactly what he meant by that, but I would like to venture two possible suggestions for why he says that Micah 6.8 are maybe, maybe the most misunderstood verse in the Bible. And the first is because we try to do it without the gospel. See, when, when we try to act justly and love mercy without the gospel, it becomes really just a display of our own ability and our own virtue, our own ability to be good moral people. It becomes this sort of normal, nice religion of a virtuous life. But doing justice and loving mercy can just become a form of moralism that teaches, hey, a good God, if if he exists, will reward people who do their best. Just try your best to treat people nice. But we need to understand that doing justice and loving mercy is only possible by the gospel. Only someone who has been justified by faith in Jesus, who's been given mercy, who's been filled with his spirit, is going to have the ability and the desire to do what pleases God. So it's only possible by the gospel. The second thing I think Newton meant when he said it's misunderstood is that we try to do it in place of the gospel. We try to do it Without the gospel first, but we also try to do it in place of the gospel. And what I mean by that is people by nature want to establish their standing before God on the basis of our efforts, of our good works. Say, look at me, God, haven't I, look at all the things that I've done right. Aren't I good enough? But when we read the Old Testament, you guys, I'm going to help those of you who are newer to faith. Maybe you're not familiar with the Bible You have the Old Testament, the New Testament. Everything in the Old Testament was written before Christ. Everything in the New New Testament is after Christ. And whenever you're reading something in the Old Testament, you have to ask yourself the question, how do I, what does this mean through the lens of the cross? Because Jesus did away with the Old Covenant and established a New Covenant. And we always have to ask ourselves the question when we read the Old Covenant, what does this mean in light of the New Covenant that Jesus came to establish? And as we've learned in this series, we are not and we cannot be saved by our good works. We are saved for good works, but we are not saved by good works. Micah is not charting a path as a means to acceptance with God. And I, for one, am super grateful for that. And if you're a believer here today, you should be too. Because if I were to stand before God on Judgment Day and he were to use this verse as the sole basis for my judgment, I would have no basis for appeal. And neither would you. Because none of us have lived up to the standard of what God requires of us when it comes to acting justly and loving mercy. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But you know who didn't sin? You know who didn't fall short? Jesus. He was perfect in every way, fulfilled every requirement of the law. Lived a perfect life, and even though he was perfect, he took our place, the innocent for the guilty. And through faith in him and his sacrificial death and resurrection, then we can be declared righteous and just and be given the power by his spirit to do what God requires of us. So I just wanted to set that up front to recognize the dangers of trying to read this Old Testament passage without the gospel or in place of the gospel as a means of access to God. We gotta be careful not to do that. Neither of us, neither of those things, without the gospel or in place of the gospel, does justice to what the prophet originally intended and really what God intended. See, the best way to understand Micah 6-8 is not as a list of things that contribute to our justification, but rather as evidences of our justification. Once we have been justified by faith and been filled with God's spirit, then he gives us by his spirit the, the ability, the desire to do what's right and the power to do what's right to do what God requires of us. 
And I think the, the key to all of it is found in that last phrase of Micah 6, 8. Walking humbly with God. You guys, the longer I follow Jesus, the more convinced I become that humility, I think, in my opinion, is probably the most underestimated character trait or virtue in the life of a Christian. In my opinion, probably the most important virtue that we should have. In fact, it's so much so that it is one of the nine sustaining values that we have as a staff and as a leadership team. If you've been around this church for very long, no doubt you know our three core values, right? To reach and teach with excellence, to belong and become with authenticity, to love and serve with intentionality. Weekend, community, outreach, that's who we are as a church. That's, you know, that's our core values. But as a staff, we have identified over the last couple years and put together, and it's the basis for the reviews for all of our staff and employees Nine behavioral traits or leadership behavioral values that are our sustaining values that describe how we are to conduct ourselves and how we are to live our lives as we carry out our job functions and our mission and our vision as a church. Those nine values are integrity, kindness, pursue health, self-awareness, teachability, servant leadership, generosity, honor, and last but certainly not least, humility. Humility is, to me, one of the most important foundational characteristic, not only of a leader in the church, but of any Christian. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. Pause. Recognize, first of all, if you're a believer in Jesus, you have received a calling from him. Part of that calling is to do the great commandment, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Part of that calling is to do the great commission, to make disciples of everyone. Part of that calling is the great requirement, to act justly and love mercy. How do we walk out our calling? Paul goes on to tell us. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It's interesting that of all the requirements that Paul lists, that are necessary for us to fulfill our calling or walk worthy of our calling, humility is the first one. The Lord loves humility in his people. The problem is we don't. By nature, we push back against this character trait that some see as weakness or as timidity. We live in a culture that does not embrace or celebrate humility, and unfortunately, I'm embarrassed to admit that a lot of times, even in churches, it doesn't seem like we value humility very much. But when we look at the scriptures, we see all throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testaments, verses that echo what James writes in James 4, 6, where he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Story after story after story of God's judgment on prideful people throughout both Old and New Testaments. Things that are said like pride leads to destruction. God hates the proud. Yes, it does say that God hates the proud. He will not help the proud. He resists the proud. He will judge the proud. So just as pride, to me, is the root of all sin, pride is really what led uh, Satan, Lucifer at the time, who was an angel, to be kicked out of heaven when he said, I will ascend, I will be like the Most High. Like His heart was filled with pride. And so just as pride is the root of all sin, so humility is the root of, mother, nurse, foundation, and bond of all virtue, as John Chrysostom once said. Similarly, Jonathan Edwards said, we must view humility as one of the most essential things that characterizes true Christianity. So again, humility might be the most important character trait of all Christian virtues. So what is it? If it's so important, what is it? Not only is it the most important, I also think it's one of the most misunderstood. So I want to start, I think it will be more helpful by explaining what humility is not. So first of all, humility is not insecurity. People often mistake personal insecurity for biblical humility, and they are not the same. Listen to me, church. It is not a sin to know who you are and to know what you've been called to and be confident in that. The Apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15.10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. He was not insecure 
in who he was. In the first line of his letter to the church at Galatia, he writes, Paul, an apostle, not from man nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. No insecurity there. Paul knew who he was and what he was called to, and when necessary, he spoke openly about those things. He wasn't afraid to leverage his authority as an apostle to bring stern correction and warning when churches were getting, you know, preaching heresy or, or getting things out of line. So knowing who you are and what you've been called to and being confident in that does not mean that you are proud any more than being hesitant or unwilling to fulfill your calling means you're humble. Insecurity should not be confused with biblical humility. And neither should indecisiveness. That's number two. Humility is not indecisiveness. See, a lot of people assume that the person who withholds his or her opinion or is hesitant to make a decision for fear of offending others or you know, not wanting to step on other people's toes is a humble person. Statements like, well, I'm not really sure and I'm open to any and all suggestions sound like humility to a lot of people. But not to God. Moses in the Old Testament is described as the most humble man who ever lived, and yet he was very decisive in leading the Israelites. Think about John the Baptist in the New Testament. In Matthew 17, Jesus said that among those born of women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. Listen, if you know the Gospels, if you've read them, you know that John the Baptist was a pretty interesting, hard man, straight lines, hard edges, said some really bold, direct things that pissed some people off, and, and yet he was humble. He was still humble. Indecisiveness is often nothing more than a failure to take God at his word. It is not humility, though it is often mistaken as such. And then number three, humility is not inactivity. Similarly, people incorrectly think that a person who just quietly sits back is kind of a wallflower, is not really quick to step up or get involved, is really just being humble because they don't want to draw attention to themselves. But listen, hedging your bets, playing it safe, and burying your talent in the ground should in no way be associated with biblical humility. Jesus was humble, but he took action when he saw that his temple was being used for profit instead of prayer. The Apostle Paul, who often wrote about humility in a lot of his letters, lived his life like a man possessed at times. Look at a couple of these verses that I found just that describe his, his activity and his energy that he worked with. 1 Corinthians 15, I worked harder than any of them. Philippians 3, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Colossians 1, I strenuously contend. One translation says, I strive with all the energy that Christ so powerfully works in me. A lot of times when we're in church and we see someone working really hard, we step back with some suspicion saying, well, what are they trying to prove? Like, what's, what's their goal? What's their agenda here, right? Let's be honest. Sometimes we, we, we have that thought about people who work really hard in the church but maybe like Jesus and like Paul, they just know their purpose and are living with the end in mind. Maybe, maybe they're motivated by a desire to reach the end and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Inactivity is not humility. It is laziness and rebellion. So what is biblical humility? Well, Jesus obviously is our ultimate standard and example for humility. So what he said and how he lived should serve as our guide. And in Luke 18, he tells a parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector to illustrate that the first point I want to make here is humility is utter dependence on God's mercy. Utter dependence on God's mercy. Jesus gave this teaching to counter a tendency amongst some back in Jesus' day that still exists today to trust in our own righteousness, to trust in our own morality and our good works. So Jesus says this in Luke 18, 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So one was a religious person, 
knew the law, knew the Bible. The other was a social outcast, rejected by society. They go up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like those other people. Those robbers, those evildoers, those adulterers, those filthy, rotten sinners. I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I've got. Meanwhile, the tax collector stood at a distance and wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, not the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So in this parable, according to Jesus, to be humble is to be aware of your own sin and cast yourself entirely upon the mercy of God. Very similar to what Jesus said in the Beatitudes during the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. To be poor in spirit means to be to have self-awareness and recognize your desperate spiritual poverty before God and to cast yourself on the mercy of God. Without your mercy, God, there is no hope for me. That is biblical humility, utter dependence on God's mercy. Number two, humility is unconcerned with power, prestige, and position. According to Jesus and in the scriptures, they're like, a humble person is not going to be like trying to grab for or scramble for position, power, influence, prestige. They're, they're willing to take the lowest seat and they're content to serve people. When Jesus caught his disciples arguing about rank and seniority, you know, who's going to sit next to Jesus and who's going to be the greatest, all this stuff. Jesus, I can only imagine, it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that this is what they're talking about. So he pulls them together in Mark 9, and he says, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Matthew 23, he said, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted again. We just read that in another passage. It was a similar theme that repeated itself in a lot of Jesus' teachings. To be humble in a biblical sense is to disregard all concern for power, prestige, or position, and to live your life to love all, serve all, and prefer all in Jesus' name. And then thirdly, humility is unquestioning acceptance of God's word. You guys, the Bible will offend you sometimes. If the Bible doesn't offend you from time to time, you're not reading it right. <laughs> There are things in God's word that when I read them, I don't understand. But I come, I, I come at it from the starting place of recognizing that your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are your ways above my ways and your thoughts above my thoughts. So even though I don't understand everything I read in God's word, I accept it as his word and as the basis of truth for my life. Jesus is the ultimate example of biblical humility. He personified what a humble character looks like that God requires of us. And the Apostle Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, here's a key phrase, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, and the word in the original language there is slave. Taking the nature of a slave being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
for most of us, our obedience only goes so far as our comfort. As soon as we get a little bit uncomfortable with things that God requires of us, we're like, you know what, I'm just going to pretend like I don't need to listen to that or obey that. No, humility is unquestioning acceptance of God's word, even when it hurts, even when we don't understand. There is no biblical definition of humility that does not include absolute, unquestioning obedience to the word of God. I love how Paul tells us in there, I pointed out the key phrase, to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. He's literally saying, think like Jesus. One translation says, have the, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Why does he say that? Because how you think determines what you become. How you think determines what you become. For Paul, his whole life was about becoming more like Jesus, right? Read his letters, and it's like, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, think like Christ, have the mind of Christ, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why does he say that? Because how you think determines what you become, and our goal as Christians should be to become more like Jesus, but we don't do that just by copying what he did. We should aim to try to think like Jesus thought, to have the same mind that Christ had. Because if you'll learn how to think like Jesus thought, then you'll live like Jesus lived. If you'll learn to think like Jesus thought, you will live like Jesus lived. And so if that's true, and I believe it is, the next question, if you're a believer, that should enter your mind is, what did Jesus think about? Because I want to be more like Jesus. I want to live like Jesus lived. So if how you think determines what you become, and if I learn to think like Jesus thought, then I'll live like Jesus lived. What did Jesus think about? When you read the Gospels, it becomes evidently clear that Jesus was consumed with thinking about pleasing his Father and loving people. I only do what the Father tells me to do, he said. I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. The only thing Jesus cared about was pleasing his father and loving and serving the people that he came to save. And so if we will learn to think like that, if we will learn to think about how to please our heavenly father and how to love people well, sounds a lot like the great commandment, doesn't it? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if we will learn to think like Jesus thought, pleasing God and loving people, then we will do what he requires of us. I want to give you five quick things in closing that I observe from this passage in Philippians about, I just want to give you some practical handles on how we begin to walk humbly with God and how we internalize this virtue of humility. The first thing that Paul wrote in that passage was to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. You guys, our motives matter. Our intentions and the reason that we do things matter. And if the reason you're doing anything is to puff up your own ego or prop up this overinflated sense of importance so that other people think you're some big deal, that's selfish ambition. That's vain conceit. Jesus often talked about the Pharisees' tendency, these religious people, that liked other people to see them as being very spiritual, being very important. So they would pray out loud to get attention from other people. When they gave offerings in the temple, they would do it very loudly and publicly so that other people would honor them. When they fasted, they would fast in a way that brought attention to themselves. Listen, praying and giving and fasting are all very important spiritual disciplines that all of us should be participating in but we don't do them to draw attention to ourselves. We do them to bring our focus and attention on God because this world distracts us and I need to refocus my mind on you and I do them out of obedience to what you've asked me to do and out of a heart of gratitude for all that you've done for me. If your motivation to do anything is to puff up your own ego rather than lift up the name of Jesus, it's selfish ambition and vain conceit and God hates it 
Number two, Paul says that we need to value others above ourselves. Jesus literally valued our lives above his when he gave his life for us. And he told us what he expects of us when he says, a new command I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. Now laying down your life is kind of the highest expression of love because it is the ultimate expression of placing one's life above your own, literally. And But most of us are not gonna be expected or required or given the opportunity to literally have to die in someone's place, thankfully. What we can do though, in valuing others above ourselves is to place other people's concerns above our own comfort and convenience. To value other people before we value the things that are going on in our life. Humility is found when we lay aside our agenda to serve others, even and especially when it's inconvenient for us and comes at a high cost to us. That's humility. Number three, Paul then says to care about the interests of others. In Galatians chapter six, verse two, Paul says that the law of Christ is fulfilled when we carry each other's burdens. And whenever you see that phrase, the law of Christ, it appears uh, a lot in Paul's letters. He's referring to what Jesus said when he said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's the law of Christ. And so he says that is fulfilled when we carry each other's burdens. But the problem with that is that's easier said than done, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I've got some of my own problems and I don't always have the emotional bandwidth or energy to carry your burdens. I don't have time for that trauma. Some of y'all are looking at me like, and you're my pastor. (laughs) Yes, I am human too, and I am trying to live this thing out the same way you are by the grace of God. It's not easy to care for other people's burdens, to put their interests and needs before your own. Because we are hardwired as human beings to look at other people's needs through the lens of our own needs, wants, wishes, preferences, right? And I'll help you only if I feel like I have the ability and the time and the energy after I'm done doing what I need to do for my life. It takes genuine effort and really a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to train ourselves to take a step back and say, no, I'm gonna live like Jesus. I'm gonna think like Jesus thought so I can live like Jesus lived. I'm gonna serve others and put other people's needs and interests before my own. Number four, use your position for the advantage of others. Use your position for the advantage of others. I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to fathom the idea that the God of the universe, the creator of everything, the all-powerful, omnipotent being would care enough about us, his creation, to abandon his throne, put on flesh, enter our experience, and allow us, his creation, to put him to death. As Paul points out, Jesus, even though he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He used his position as God to serve others, not to prop himself up. It's easy for us a lot of times, I think, to assume that any privilege or authority we have, well, we've earned it. So I'm going to use that authority to milk it and and accumulate for myself all of the enjoyments and privileges of, of enjoying what can be a miserable existence here on this earth. No. We use whatever, listen, position is not wrong. Influence and authority is not wrong. But whatever influence and authority God has given you, use it for other people's advantage, not your own. That's humility. Number five, be willing to take the lowest position. Again, Jesus, the Son of God, co-equal with the Father, eternally existent, the one through whom everything we see in this world was created. Without him, nothing that we see 
could have been made. All powerful. Humbled himself to become a slave to serve sinful humanity that had rebelled and sinned against him. It's one thing to become a servant. How many of you would be willing to serve people who have been cruel to you? That's biblical humility. When we're willing to serve people who mistreat us, misunderstand us, misrepresent us, be willing to take the lowest position. Whoever wants to be great must be the servant of all. It's not just about a posture or frame of mind. It's about an action. Doing things to serve others. Like, are you willing to do the menial, insignificant, dirty tasks and jobs that that no one else wants to do? And if you are, are you willing to do them without apology or excuse? For example, just if, if you were to be found by someone and you were cleaning a public restroom, say that was a task that you were assigned. Gross, dirty job, right? Would your immediate thought, if someone walks in and sees you cleaning the restroom, would you be afraid of what they think of you? Poor guy, poor girl, I wonder what they did to deserve that job. Or would you feel the need to explain yourself and say, no, I volunteered for this so that you can elevate their opinion of you in their mind. See, taking the lowest position, being humble and being a servant is more than just assuming the position of a servant. It's also accepting the stigma that comes with being a servant. Just like it says that Jesus became obedient to death, even death on a cross, because that was a whole different level of humiliation reserved for those who were cursed. Isaiah 66, 2, God says this. I will look favorably upon this kind of person. How many of you want God to look favorably on you? If your hand's not up, I don't know what's wrong with you. I want God to look favorably on me. God says, I will look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and who trembles at my word. So getting back to the three things that humility is, a person who is utterly dependent on God's mercy, who is unconcerned with power, prestige, or position, and who unquestioningly accepts God's word, will not only have a proper view of themselves, which is the traditional definition of humility that most of us know, but we will also then be able to walk with God. It requires humility to walk with God. Think about that phrase even. I don't know that we have a high enough view of who God is. All-powerful, omnipotent, eternal. Says we can walk with him. How do you, I mean, you've got to have humility if you're going to walk with God. And you have to walk with God if you want to learn how to think like Jesus thought so that you can live like Jesus lived. Only when we walk humbly with God will we do what he requires of us in acting justly and loving mercy. I think sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking that the people we read about in the Bible, you know, when we read about Paul or we read about, you know, Moses or Abraham or Deborah or David or Peter or Lydia or fill in the blank, anybody that you admire in Scripture, we think, well, they're, they're on a different level than me. They're, they're special. You guys, they're not special. They're average people like you and me that learned how to walk humbly with God. And because they walked humbly with God, God did incredible things through their lives. I think the world 
is desperately waiting for a people who will walk with God in our generation. Scripture says creation is groaning, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. So my question is, are you going to be someone who walks humbly with God? It's not just about being humble, because there's a lot of people who demonstrate some humility but don't walk with God. So are you going to be somebody who walks humbly with God? Not just be humble, but walks humbly with God, which means you got to be with Him. Are you in His Word like every single day? His Word is your food. It's your source. It's your strength. Jesus said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Faith, our faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Jesus said the, in, in, in Paul's letter in Ephesians, the, the armor of God, that the word is the sword of the spirit. It's your weapon. You have no hope of being victorious against your spiritual adversary if you're not in the word, if you don't know the word. Walk humbly with God. Are you with God in prayer? Do you just sit at his feet and train yourself to still the noise? Say, Father, before I utter a single request, I need to hear you speak. I need to hear your voice a whole lot more than you need to hear mine. I know you want to hear mine, but Lord, I need to hear your voice. Are you prioritizing being in God's house with God's people as often as you can every Sabbath to worship God, to be encouraged by the preaching of his word, to encourage one another in the faith, to serve other people who are coming to the table after coming up empty at the buffet of the world and need to taste and see that God is good. If you're not prioritizing the things that God has said to us through his word, our priorities to him, you're not really walking with God. And he has shown us what he requires of us, Micah tells us, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to not try to do justice or mercy, to do Micah 6, 8 without the power of the gospel. And help us to never fall into the trap that we can do this in place of the gospel as a means of gaining acceptance with you. Lord, this is only possible by the gospel, the good news that Jesus did what we could not. He lived the life that we couldn't, but died the death that we deserved. And in the scandal of grace, the exchange of our sin for your righteousness, when we place our faith in you, gives us the ability and the desire to do what pleases you. So God, I humble myself before you and before my church family this morning, acknowledging, God, that I have tried to do this in my own strength. I have tried to do what you require of us in my own power and have tried to pawn it off as a form of spirituality. And so God, I repent this morning of pride. We repent for the times when we have tried to do this without you, when the motives of our heart have been to prop up our own image. God, we repent of the times when we've been insecure or indecisive and have failed to take you at your word or when we've been inactive. God, I pray that you'd fill us with a holy boldness and confidence to know who we are and what you've called us to do, but as we walk that calling out, God, that we would do it with humility, with utter dependence on your mercy, 
not being concerned with power or prestige or position and unquestioningly accepting and obeying what your word tells us to do. God, we need you. Lord, we want to walk humbly with you. I want Life Church Buffalo to be a church that above all else wants to walk humbly with God. God, we want to walk with you. So would you remove from our lives anything that's displeasing to you, anything that grieves your spirit. We want to be a people who have clean hands and a pure heart. Forgive us of our pride, Lord. And grant us humility. Teach us how to walk humbly with you. Give us a hunger for your word and a passion for your presence. As we continue praying all across this room with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're somebody here who, I don't know if it's your first time or you've been coming a while and you've been kicking the tires of this church thing and trying to figure out what it means to be a Christian or what it means to have a relationship with God. And maybe you are that person I described earlier that has trusted in your own good works, your own morality, believing that if you just live a good enough life that you'll make it into heaven. We can't walk with God or we definitely can't spend eternity with God until we humble ourselves and confess and repent of our sins that Jesus took upon himself so that we could be made right with God. And if you're ready to, to make that decision and take that step today and confess and say, Lord, I'm a sinner, I need a savior, I wanna humble myself before you, will you just boldly raise your hand? Say, that's me. I need to humble myself and repent of my sin, turn to Jesus, trust in him for forgiveness. I see that hand in the center over here. Is there anybody else? I see that hand on the left. God bless you. I'm proud of you. If you're watching online, you click the link in the comment section of whatever platform you're watching on. Anybody else before we pray? I need to humble myself before God, confess my sin, and receive his forgiveness. Well, church, I don't want anybody praying alone, so will you join those who are right now making this courageous step to humble themselves before God and repent and turn to him. Everyone say, Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sin. I confess that I am a sinner and I need a savior. Jesus, I believe that you are the son of God, that you died for me, and that you rose again. And right now, I humble myself before you and I ask you to cleanse me and make me new. Jesus, I turn from my old life and I choose to follow you. Fill me with your spirit and give me the power to walk humbly with you from this day forward. Jesus, I give you my life. Now, God, I just pray you seal this work in the hearts of those who have prayed that prayer. I pray that this moment would have been more than just a token prayer, but it would have been a genuine submission of their lives to you, to trust in you, not only for forgiveness, but to surrender to you as Lord. God, I thank you for growing your family. I thank you for revealing yourself to people in real ways every single week where we see people every week responding to the invitation to be made right with you. And God, I just pray that even though we are closing the series out, that this wouldn't be the end of our focus and our attention to do what you require of us. We see this verse through the lens of the cross and recognize that only you were just and only you truly love mercy. But Lord, it doesn't excuse us from our responsibility because we've been empowered by your Holy Spirit to do 
what you require of us. So help us to not to just move past this, but Lord, help us to intentionally think about how we can take steps and where we can get involved and where you're calling us to act justly, to help the vulnerable, to love mercy as we walk humbly with you. In Jesus' name, may it be so. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Church, can we put our hands together and make some noise to welcome those who are born into God's family today? That's what it's all about, you guys. If I could take a quick second to address those of you that raised your hand a moment ago and prayed that prayer and surrendered your life to Jesus and humbled yourself. Can I say congratulations on the most important decision you'll ever make in your entire life and welcome to the family of God. You're now our brother, you're our sister in the Lord and you're a part of a family that wants to come alongside of you and help you take some next steps. Because the truth is that decision you just made was just one step on a journey that's gonna last you the rest of your life. But you're not on the journey alone, so we wanna come beside you. So if you could do me a huge favor, if you just said yes to Jesus, can you grab the green I've decided card in the seat back pocket in front of you? And on the back side, just check the box that indicates the decision you just made. And on your way out, if you would please, 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 don't disregard this request. Head out to the foyer and to the welcome area. One of our dream team members would love to exchange that card for a Bible and some other resources that will explain a little bit more about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus and suggest some next steps that you may want to consider taking now that you are a follower of Jesus. And could I encourage you to consider one of those next steps to be signing up for baptism, which just so happens to be next Sunday, one of the highlights of the year for us as a church when we get to celebrate those who are going public with their faith. And so we would love to celebrate your decision next Sunday. Sign up to get baptized. Now, as our dream team members get into position to serve you with excellence on your way out, I like to remind everyone that if there's anything that's still heavy on your heart, anything that you're going through that's challenging or causing you stress or worry or anxiety, we would love to pray with you. Our dream team, our prayer team would be honored if you would head to the back corner of the auditorium before you leave and just give them the opportunity to agree with you in prayer and ask God to move in your situation. Church, I love you so much. I'm excited about the new series we're starting next week. We're gonna spend a summer in the Psalms. We're gonna have some messages focused in the Psalms and it's gonna be fun. I hope you have a great week. God bless you. We'll see you next Sunday.